All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. That is Romans 6, 1 through 14. And we're continuing our series, Respectable Sins. Um, this morning, I'll continue laying a foundation for us to work from before getting into particular sins. And I'll, I'll do so by setting before you the believer's freedom from sin. Did you know that if you are a Christian, you are free from the power of sin? Did you know that? Now, we often focus on our freedom from the penalty for sin that comes to us because Christ has suffered for our sins in our place, and now there is no more wrath due to us from God. That's what we focus on most of the time. And look, that, that's right and good. We should focus on that. We should glory in that. We should think about that often. But there is a twin truth to our freedom from the penalty for sin. We are also free from sin's power. As, as we will read in our text this morning, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. Rather, we are free to live a new life in Christ Jesus. You see, too often when we think about putting our sins to death or fighting our sin, which is the purpose of this series... Too often when we think about that, we think only in terms of what we need to do. I think that's fair. That's what we think about. We think only, often we think only in terms of practical doing steps that we need to take in our lives. And look, that's appropriate to some degree. God willing, I'm actually going to get into that some more next week. Um, there, there is a measure of our doing and obeying the Lord that must exist in our lives or we're not going to conquer sin ever. Right? Growing in holiness is not a spectator sport. Right? Let go and let God is foolish and unbiblical. Right? It's, it's, it's not a spectator sport. It, it does indeed require effort from the believer. But God does not call us to some kind of mere white-knuckled obedience. That's not what he calls us to, right? Where we have to fight in our own strength and with our own resources apart from faith, right? Figure it out. That's not what the Lord says to us, right? If that were the case, then we would never kill the first sin in our lives. We're not strong enough. But God has done something for us in Jesus Christ. He has given us a new nature in Christ. He has crucified our old man with Christ. He has set us free from sin. And that is the only reason that we are able to grow in holiness and say no to sin and yes to God. God has done something in us and for us first. Right? Shocker, right? That God had to do something first. That, that's, that's how this always is. But it's because of what God has done in us first that we can grow in holiness, fight against our flesh, and live godly lives. And we need to know this if we are to ever put to death our remaining sin. We have to know this. Why is it so important for us to know? Well, because we fight sin by faith in Jesus Christ. Right? The, the whole Christian life is one of faith. Everything we do is by faith. It is never in our own strength, but by believing what God has said and relying on his power and what he has done in Jesus Christ that we grow. That's it's it. So then, if, if we must believe, if we must live by faith, then we must first know what God says that he has done for us in Christ. 
And that's what I want to focus on this morning with regard to our freedom from sin. God has done something in every believer when we were converted. God has done something marvelous to us. He has united us to his son. He has united us to Christ. And with that union with Christ comes freedom from the dominion of sin. And being made free in Christ, we now respond naturally to seek after God and obedience to him. Being changed by God's grace, united to Christ and freed from sin, we now reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And being made dead to sin, we now grow in holiness. So we must believe what God has done. We're going to see this later in our text. We must reckon ourselves dead to sin. And then we will grow in light of that reality which we embrace by faith. We have to believe what God has done. We have to believe first. So this sermon will not be five steps to killing sin. That's not it. Uh, There's a place for that. Uh, There's a place for talking about practical steps. And as I said, Lord willing, I want to get into some of that next week. Uh, But before we can ever consider what we should do, we first must consider what God has done first. So the focus on this sermon is going to be that. Our ability to fight sin comes to us because God has united us to his son, Jesus Christ, who is not under the dominion of sin. And so we are not either. May God bless the preaching of his word. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of all grace, please help us and teach us this morning. Grant us grace to understand your word. Grant us grace to believe what you've said. And grant us grace to wage war on our sin by faith in the Son of God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey. Glorify yourself in us 
and sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the Apostle Paul, having just finished writing at length about the doctrine of justification by faith alone in chapters 3, 4, and 5, he now anticipates an abuse of that doctrine. Paul's really good at that. He sees what people might do with his words and he addresses it. He's been explaining since the middle of chapter 3 that we are declared righteous in God's sight through faith alone in Christ alone, completely apart from any acts of righteousness or obedience from us to God. Faith alone in Christ alone. And in light of that, Paul knows that some are going to try to twist his teaching. Some would say, and some of us in the history of this church have foolishly said, so then... If we are justified by faith alone, apart from anything that we do, apart from any obedience to God from us, then that means we can just live however we want, right? right? We can just sin all we want because God's grace will be magnified and he'll be shown to be extra gracious because he's forgiven us for so much, right? And that's why Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? But that's an absolute misunderstanding of what it means to have faith in Christ. Because faith in Christ has some serious consequences for the believer. Things happen within us that God does once we believe on Christ. And that's why Paul answers that question so strongly in verse 2. By no means, or as the King James says, God forbid. Here the apostle uses the strongest negative language that's available to him in the Greek language. And it even has a sense of shock and outrage that someone would even suggest that a believer can continue to live in sin after conversion. He says, absolutely not. By no means. What are you thinking? Right? He's he's saying this is nonsense that you would even say that. So Paul says unequivocally that those who have believed on Christ and have been justified absolutely cannot continue to live in sin. And then he begins to give his explanation for why this is the case. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Catch that. Christian, catch that. Paul just made an amazing declaration about you. The we here, how can we, Paul's including himself in this. He's talking about all true believers. Everyone who has been born again by the Holy Spirit and brought to saving faith in Christ. And he says that all of us, All Christians, without exception, have died to sin. And when Paul says died to sin throughout this passage, he's referring to the fact that we are spiritually dead to the power and authority of sin. That, as we'll see later in our text, we are no longer slaves to sin. And since we are dead to sin, Paul says that we cannot still live in it. Now, I want to be clear about something. Paul is not saying that Christians will never sin after their conversion. He actually contradicts that idea completely in the next chapter when he speaks about his own struggle with remaining sin in his life as a Christian. And remember, rule one of Bible interpretation is that the authors of the Bible are not stupid and that they will not contradict themselves. Right, so Paul's not going to say something in chapter 6, all true Christians don't sin. And then in chapter 7, yeah, I still sin sometimes, I have to fight with that. I don't believe that's what Paul's doing <laughs> More than that, there are many texts of Scripture that instruct Christians to repent of their sin, ask God to forgive them of their sins, kill their remaining sins, and more. So Paul is not telling us, he 
is not telling us that we will never sin again if we've become Christians. Rather, Paul is saying that we absolutely cannot live in sin. That is, we cannot live in an unbroken, impenitent lifestyle of sin. Christians can and do sin, even after they're converted, to our shame. I'm not trying to make you feel better about your sin. It's to our shame. But Paul is saying that we cannot live the same way that we lived before becoming Christians. And why is that? Because we died to sin. So again, there'll be repentance in a Christian. There'll be a hatred of sin. There'll be a fight against sin. Sin will indeed, as the more that we grow, become less and less desirable to the Christian. We won't be able to live at peace with it. As our confession says, since we have died to sin, there begins an irreconcilable war against it in our lives. We died to sin when we became Christians, so then it's impossible for us to live in it. That's what Paul says. And then Paul goes on to remind us of why this is true. Verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I like how Paul starts this. Do you not know? This is a bit of a rebuke to anyone who could think that the Christian can continue into sin. Don't you know what your baptism pictured? Surely you haven't forgotten that. Don't you know? Were you not instructed? Don't you know what your baptism symbolized? Don't you know what God's promises were to you in your baptism? He says that all of us who have been baptized were baptized into Christ Jesus. And he's saying this because, by the way, Paul's assuming here that every Christian has been baptized because that is the norm. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. People can be on the path to getting baptized, but ordinarily Christians are, have already been baptized. So he's saying that all Christians have been spiritually immersed into Christ. That's what baptized means. And this was pictured in our water baptism. Our baptism is a sign of or you could put it this way, um, we were sacramentally put into Christ in our baptism. Now, that doesn't mean that our baptism converted us. It's not a converting ordinance. Rather, it, it refers to what's signified in baptism. And what is signified in baptism is the promise of salvation through the washing away of our sin and our being united to Christ by faith. Our baptism was a sign, among other things, of our union with Christ. Or actually, maybe I should put it this way. Our baptism is primarily a sign of our union with Christ, and with that union comes all the other blessings. Baptism is a sign of union with Christ, and that's why Paul says we were baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be united to Christ or united with him? There's a whole lot that can be said, but in a short version, at least for our purposes this morning, it means that everything that is his with the exception to those things that are unique to his divine nature. Everything that is his is ours. And everything that he did, we did in him. And all the blessings that are his are ours. Just like how Adam's sin is our sin because we're born in Adam, that is, we're born united to Adam, with Adam as our representative before God. So now through faith in Christ, we have been united to Christ and are in Christ. And what is his now belongs to us. 
This is good news. By faith, we've been united to him. And what's his is ours. And that's pictured in your baptism. You say, how is it pictured in your baptism? Well, just as you were fully immersed in water at baptism, after you've come to faith in Christ, so also through faith in Christ, you have been fully immersed, plunged into Christ himself. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we're Baptists. The way that we we do baptism by immersion, because that's the picture. You are in Christ, like you are in the water. And with that union with Christ comes a spiritual union with his death. That's what Paul says. He says we were baptized into his death. His death on the cross is our death because we've been united to him by faith. Again, that's a kind of an odd thought, but it's what Paul's saying. When Jesus died, we died with him. And as Paul goes on to say in verse 6, this means that our old self, literally your old man, the person that you were before being converted died with Christ. The old man, the old you who was a slave to sin, who hated righteousness, who was so bound in sin that you could not and would not obey God, Romans 8, 7. The old you who loved sin, the old you who could not resist sin, the old you who could not do anything but sin, that person died when Jesus died. And this is because by faith, You've been united to him. And so his death is the death of your old self. And Paul says that we died with Christ. I like this. I like Paul's language here. In order that, there's a lot of those. So that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We died by virtue of our union with Christ so that just as Jesus was raised to a new life in his body, we also would be raised to a new spiritual life that is not like our old life of slavery to sin. It's newness of life. Christian, do you know this? You have a new life. Through faith in Christ, the old you is dead. And you have received a resurrection from your old spiritually dead life. You are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. And with that new life comes what? New abilities. New abilities to resist sin and obey the Lord. And that is why, by the way, you see Paul's reasoning. That is why those who have come to faith in Christ cannot and will not live in sin. Why? Because we can't. Like, check this. Read Paul carefully. It's not merely inconsistent for a Christian to live in unrepentant, unbroken sin. It's not just inconsistent. Paul says it is not possible. It is not possible because we have a new life in Christ. Christian, I say again, I'm going to beat this drum. The old you is dead. The you who was a slave to sin is dead and you have been raised to newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now Paul goes on to argue for what he said in verses 1 through 4. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He says if we've been united with Christ in his death, and we have, then we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. 
And listen, while it's true that because of our union with Christ, one of the blessings that comes from that union is that we will be resurrected bodily on the last day. That's true. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That doesn't fit the context. He's referring to our spiritual resurrection with Christ that enables us to walk in newness of life that he's already spoken of in verse 4. So what he's saying is that just as certainly as we have been united with Christ in his death, we have also been given a new resurrection life because Jesus was raised as well. So again, how can we continue to live like we did before we came to Christ if we have been given a new life in him that's not like the one that we had before? The answer is we can't. We can't. Paul continues in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, I know that this sermon, Paul, Paul kind of repeats himself a lot, so I'm going to do the same thing. You need to catch this. Paul says, we know. Verse 6, first words, we know. Christian, we know this. There should not be any doubt in your mind that this is true. And what we know is that our old self was crucified with Jesus. Know that. The old man who is a slave to sin is dead. The you who could not do anything but sin is dead. He was crucified at Calvary. Know this. Argue with yourself. For real, do this. This is good. Just as certainly as Christ was nailed to a tree, do you believe he was nailed to a tree? Yes, you do if you're a Christian. Just as certainly as that happened, your old self was crucified with him. To say, I don't really know if the old me is dead, is to say, you don't know if he died. None of us would say that. His death is our hope. So just as much as he died, you died. And why did this happen? Why did God do this? In order that, purpose statement, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now what's this body of sin? I think Paul's just talking about you. The body that was full of sin and only sin. The unredeemed you. The you that loved sin. That you was crucified so that it would be brought to nothing. What's brought to nothing mean? It means rendered inoperative. It doesn't have any power anymore. So again, the old you was crucified and killed with Christ so that it would no longer have any power over you. Why? Another purpose statement. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The old you was crucified and killed with Christ so that it would no longer have any power over you so that you would be free from sin. That's what Paul says. And when I say free from sin, once again, I, I need to say, I don't mean that you'll never sin again. What I mean is that you are free from the authority and power of sin that once held sway over and directed the old you. And you're free from that dominion because the old you is dead in Christ. So our old nature is dead in principle. It died when Christ died, and God made it so, so that we would not be slaves to sin any longer. Now listen to me. This is, it's, it's got to, I, I keep nailing this. I just want to make sure no one misunderstands me. We are still tempted to sin. We still even succumb to sin. But Paul's point is not that we are sinless. Rather, it is that the dominion of sin... That is the mastery that sin once had over us 
in our unregenerate, unconverted state is broken. Just real, maybe I should have put this in the sermon. Here we go. You know how you, sin had a stranglehold on you before you were converted? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, and you didn't have any faith. Everything, every breath that the unconverted person takes is a sin against God because it's not done for his glory. You could not do anything but sin. Even the good things, like the civilly righteous things that you did, still sin because they were for the glory of the creature or yourself and not the glory of God. Stranglehold that sin had on us. You had no ability to fight back. Oh, you could work some moral reformation for a short time, but you could not change your heart. Furthermore, you did not want to change. You loved your sin. The only thing that you did not love were maybe some of the consequences that came to you because of your sin. Sin had a stranglehold on us. But Paul's point now is that mastery is gone. That dominion is gone. And it's gone because God killed the old us with Christ. So that we would not be slaves anymore. Paul says there has been a definitive break with the power of sin in our lives because we have died with Christ. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. That is, the one who has died with Christ is set free. Sin, I'm going to illustrate this in a minute. Sin no longer has any legal claim on the one who has died. Sin no longer has any claim whatsoever on the one who has died with Christ. So by virtue of our union with Christ by faith, we have been set free from the dominion of sin. Let me illustrate this. If a soldier has been discharged from the United States Army, he is free from the authority and dominion of the Army. That man who was a soldier, no disrespect to anybody, some people don't like my terminology here, that soldier is not a soldier anymore. He still has the skills maybe, but he's not a soldier anymore. The day he was discharged, his status changed. That means in at least one regard, he is not the same person that he was before being discharged. There has been a change in his status. So now as a free man, right, free from the authority of the army, if a drill sergeant approached him on the street and demanded him to drop to the ground and assume the push-up position, would that man have to obey? No. Not at all. Why? Because I'm not under the authority of the army anymore. Now, if he wants to, he can get on the ground and start doing push-ups. And he might, out of habit. He might. But eventually, he would realize, I don't have to do this. I was discharged from the army, and this man doesn't have the authority to make me do anything anymore. By the way, I would love to see someone who's been discharged from the army. I'd love to see someone still in the army try to make them do anything. You ever met those guys? Doesn't go well. Doesn't go well at all. Why? Because the former soldier died to the army. He has died to the authority and dominion of the army. And in a much greater and much more significant way, Christian, you have died to the authority and dominion of sin. You are free and you do not have to obey sin any longer. You may out of habit or stupidity, but you don't have to. You are no longer bound and captive to it. Rather, you are a free man in Christ Jesus. 
Do you know what kind of an effect this can have on you? You could ask my wife. I was in a foul mood for about 15 minutes yesterday. And in the car, I, I pulled over and I, I, I prayed. I'm not saying this to praise me. I'm saying this is practice. This is real life. Lord, I don't have to be sinfully angry. And I don't have to act like a jerk because you freed me in your son. Help me to not be a jerk. I don't know if you guys pray like that, but I do. And guess what? That made a huge difference. Just remembering I don't have to because I'm not under the dominion of sin anymore. That is a game changer. By faith, we fight sin. But now in verses 8 through 10, Paul switches from talking about our death with Christ and focuses more on our life with him and his resurrection. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. Again, like in verse 5, this is not bodily resurrection. It's a, it's a reference to our new life of freedom to obey God. Um, so again, if we died with Christ, we also share in his resurrection that gives us a new moral and spiritual life. And Paul continues this thought in verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, these two verses are somewhat complicated. So just bear with me. I'm going to do my best to summarize what Paul's saying here. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and being raised, he will never, ever die again. Why? Because death has no dominion over him any longer. And why does death not have any dominion over him? Because when Jesus died... He died to sin once for all time, never to be repeated again. Now, when Paul says that Jesus died to sin, he is not saying that Jesus stopped sinning. Why? Because Jesus never sinned to begin with. So that's not what he means here. What's in view is the fact that at the cross, sin was imputed to Jesus on our behalf, and Jesus was counted as a sinner in our place. And when he became sin... When sin was imputed to him, this, may make you unco- this language may make you a bit uncomfortable, but I think it's what Paul's getting at here. When sin was imputed to Christ, sin then had a claim on him. And that claim was death. For as Paul tells us, the wages of sin is death. Sin had a legal claim on Jesus when it was imputed to him, because where there is sin, there must be death. And so sin had a claim on him at the cross. And when Jesus died, what happened? The claim was canceled. Jesus died, and in his death rendered the claim of sin. The authority that sin temporarily had over him at the cross to kill, he rendered it null and void. When Jesus died, he broke the power of sin. He broke it. And then being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Why? Because he did away with sin. He made atonement for it and took it away. It therefore has no claim on him any longer. And since it has no claim on him, he cannot die again. In his death, Christ cast off sin and the claims that it had on him at the cross and being raised from the dead, never to have sin imputed to him again, he will never die. And since we've been united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, 
we will never go under the claim and authority of sin ever again. We will never go back. Why? Because the one we've been united to will never be under it again. So as long as Jesus is alive, we are free from the dominion and power of sin in our lives. And guess what? I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's what Jesus says to John. He will never die again. What does that mean? It means we're free. It means we're free. We'll never again be under sin's control because Jesus will never be under it. The, the power of sin has been broken because when Christ was raised from the dead, he broke it and we're united with him. It is an impossibility for us to ever be slaves again to sin. We are objectively free in Christ. And now we come to Paul's conclusion about all of this in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that in light of all that he's said so far, there's something that we must embrace by faith. And what we must embrace is that we are indeed dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I appreciate the language here. We must consider. First, you must. You have to do this. It's commanded. You're commanded to believe. You must consider. That word consider can be translated reckon. I think it's the King James. Reckon yourselves or count. It's an accounting term in the Greek. It means to impute something to an account. Like how God imputes or credits or considers or reckons the righteousness of Christ to our account. In the same way, we are to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You must believe that this is true. If you're going to grow in holiness, if you're going to live a life of godliness, you must believe. You must embrace these truths by faith. And listen, they sound too good to be true. Right? But the whole gospel message sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But it's true. It's true. We must believe that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Please hear me. If you don't believe this, you will not properly wage war against your sin, but you will merely try to white-knuckle yourself into changing your external behavior. And listen, you may succeed for a minute. You may succeed for a long time, but your heart won't change. It's by faith that we truly kill sin. It's by believing that God has set us free that we will begin to live freely. But we have to first believe. We have to first know that we're free. Let me illustrate this for you. Uh, the holiday Juneteenth is a celebration of the day that the slaves in Texas found out that they were free. Now, the slaves had been free for a while. They just didn't know it. And because they didn't know it, guess what they continued to do? They continued to live like slaves. But on June 19, 1865, an announcement was given by a union general in Galveston, Texas, that the slaves were indeed free. And from that day on, the slaves knew that they were free and little by little began to live as free men. On that day, there was a realization of, I don't have to do what my so-called master says anymore. Why? Because he's not my master anymore. I don't have to live on this plantation. Why? Because I don't have to. I can't be sold. 
I can't be forced to work for free. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm a free man. And then they began to live like it. Brothers and sisters, we must consider ourselves free or we will never live in the fullness of the freedom from sin that Christ died to purchase for us. This isn't mind games, by the way. (laughs) This isn't mind games that you're playing with yourself. This isn't the power of positive thinking. If anyone knows me for five minutes, you know I hate that kind of stuff. This This is a matter of living by faith in the Son of God who has set you free, and then by faith putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what this is. We submit to God by faith. We fight sin by faith. We do everything by faith in Christ. So we will grow in holiness only by faith that God really has set us free from sin because our old self is dead with Christ and we are now alive in Him. Christian, believe that. I know I've got a a few verses left, so I'm going to cover them quickly for the sake of time. But in light of the fact that we have been objectively set free from sin... Paul then, and only then, I like it, I like that, only after he says, this is what God has done for you, then he tells us practical commands to live a holy life. Right, check this, write this down, get it tattooed on your forehead. The indicative of what God has done for us always comes before the imperative of what we are now to do. It's always God did this first, now you do this. By the way, Romans chapter 1 through 11 God did this, chapter 12, now brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Ephesians, I believe it's the first three chapters. This is what God has done, chapter 4, live in a manner worthy of this. This is how it always is. So again, the indicative always comes before the imperative. It's always God working first. So then, Paul says, in light of the work that God has done to set us free, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Let me summarize that in one sentence. Go be what you are in Christ. I've been telling you what you are. Be it. You've been set free and made holy. Now go live as a free man. Live like it. But notice something. It will take effort, won't it? It will be a fight. What's he say? Let not sin reign. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I like this. This is a helpful phrase. You are dead to sin, but sin is not dead. You're dead to sin, but sin is not dead. It's still alive. You're not under its dominion, but it's still there. You're not yet glorified. You've not made it to the end yet. And this verse implies sin is going to try to reign. If you have to let not sin therefore reign, that means it's going to try. It's going to try to make you obey. It can't make you obey, but it's going to try. Sin will lie. Sin will tempt. Sin will present itself to you as if you must obey. Sin will still present itself in your heart. Right? The first motions of sin, which are truly sinful, will still rise up. And sin will try to get you to submit to those stirrings in your heart. And so you must fight. Do not submit. Wage the good warfare. 
And listen, this will take discipline. It will. I'm not saying everything's just white-knuckled obedience, but through faith, this will still take discipline. This will require running from sin. As Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. You have to run sometimes. You have to avoid occasions to sin. It will require you making moves to change your lifestyle in certain ways. You entered a war with sin the moment you became a Christian. And you are now commanded to kill it wherever you find it. And this takes effort. God has freed you, but you have to fight now to live in that freedom. And so we must be serious about living free and be diligent to avoid sin and refuse to submit to the temptation to sin. You've not yet resisted to the sin to the point of blood. What's that mean? Resist to blood. Resist till you die. Resist till it kills you if you have to, but keep resisting. And so we do not give ourselves over to sin. And instead of presenting ourselves to sin, we give ourselves instead over to God as those who have been brought from death to life. We daily renew. Do you do, you do this in your prayers? Do you consider this in the mornings when you wake up? To, to daily renew your commitment to the God who freed you? Lord, you say I'm free. Help me to live free. You say I'm not under the tyranny and dominion of sin anymore. Would you help me today to live like that's true? All we daily recommit ourselves to God. So again, present yourselves. I think that's a conscious thing. Present yourselves as an instrument, as a tool for living the way that God commands. For living as a free man. So again, this is conscious daily work. This is the area of progressive sanctification. Where we go little by little and we kill sin one sin at a time. That's the fight. By faith in what God has done, we now fight. But listen, last verse, we fight with a promise, don't we? We are to engage this fight with confidence that we will win. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. If God told the Israelites, go take Canaan, why? Because I'm going to win for you. And they were to go. And then they took the land. A nation that should not have taken the land took the land. In a similar way, God says, I'm telling you beforehand, sin will not have dominion over you. Now go fight it. The Israelites still had to be strategic. Joshua wasn't an idiot. They weren't slouches. But where did they go? They went and waged war by faith that God would win for them. In the same way, Paul's telling us, it won't have dominion over you. Go fight it. Remember that. Remember that. So Christian, take the promise and believe. Believe. Fight like a free man, for you are free because you have died with Christ and were raised with him by faith. So Christian, I'll say this. Be what you are. You're free. Fight like a free man. Fight your sin by faith in what God has done. May God grant us each a greater measure of faith to believe and to live in light of what he has done. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven and we are new people. 
Help us to never forget those twin truths. Lord, would you help us? God forbid it that we would nod our heads and say, yes, that's all true. And then walk out these doors and, and, and not bring these things to mind and not believe them and apply them to our hearts every day. Help us to obey the apostle and, and, and reckon these, selves, these things true of ourselves. And to daily renew ourselves to you, presenting ourselves as instruments for righteousness to God. Help us to live for your glory through faith in the Son of God with whom we have died and with whom we are also alive. We pray in his name. Amen.